All right. Another edition of Are You a Robot? This time with Rohan. Let's get a quick intro. Uh, my name is Rohan. I'm from New Zealand here. Uh, I consult on data strategy, governance, and risk for organizations who want both innovation and social acceptance. So in case this is your first time popping by, this is a series that aims to tackle some of the greatest challenges and questions that we face related to AI and other technologies. I'm Demetrios Brinkman, the host, and the way that we are trying to tackle some of these challenges is by getting the experts on here to talk with me about what it is they're doing, how they're seeing the world, if there's anything we need to keep at the front of our mind as we go forth and AI and all of these new technologies become more and more ubiquitous in our daily lives. So I will mention that if you like anything in this conversation and you would like to keep it going, we've got a Slack channel and there you can come introduce yourself and start a conversation with us. We're all there. Most of the guests that we have on are in the Slack channel. And so I encourage you to come and tell us what you liked, what you didn't like, any kind of discussion that you would like to have, jump in the Slack channel. You can find the link for that in the description below. And last but not least, we have got to give it up for our sponsor, Ethics Grade. They're doing some incredible stuff right now when it comes to ESG benchmarking. They're a ratings company that is specifically looking at data, AI ethics, how different companies are doing what they say they are doing. So you can check out all these different companies, AI ethics programs and other things by going to the ethics grade website which is ethicsgrade.io, easy enough. You can also find the link for that in the description below. And there on the website, there's some really cool stuff going on because you can download one of these scorecards and you can see what the score any of these companies that they've rated has. It's all public information, it's free for anyone. So if you'd like to compare the score of Tesla and Toyota or of Facebook and Clubhouse, you can. It's really exciting. And if you check out some of the scorecards, I think you're going to be surprised by what you come up with and which companies have good scores and which companies have not so good scores. So go check it out. It's ethicsgrade.io. And without further ado, let's get into this conversation with Rowan. Are you a robot? All right, Rohan, thank you for coming on this series. I'm excited to talk to you. One, because you have been one of the most influential voices in our Are You a Robot Slack channel. I think that you, everything that you share with us and your points of views are always on point. They're always insightful. And so it was only natural that we had to get together and talk. I mean, I really thank you for that, first yeah. of all. And I think it would be proper to start with a bit of background about yourself and how you came to be where you're at and and have all this knowledge that you can share with the rest of us. 
Cool, man. Um, thank you for those kind words. Too kind. Um, I, uh, my background is in risk. So that's my core discipline. And that's what I will return to um, when I analyze this stuff. And uh, all I really do is look for frame blindness, essentially. I look for the things that systemically people can't see um, because they're observable and the artifacts that people create. Mm -hmm. And um, here we are in 2021, and I got on this train in 2014. Okay. Um, there was uh, a movement within the data professionals here in New Zealand, uh, probably started in 2013, but it, it got itself it expressed itself and its thinking in 2015. And that was the Data Futures Forum, uh, which was a, a decent attempt to reach out to adjacent professionals, not just the, the usual guys, but the people in adjacent um, professions and get them thinking about data mm -hmm. and future, uh, using futures techniques. And I was caught up in that uh, jumble and have just stayed on the scent since, I think. Uh, we saw some uh, important issues around um, the social side of data at the time. Mm. We were um, perversely lucky that we had a couple of good scandals about um, how data should not have been used. And in New Zealand here, we get quite um, stroppy uh, when... Um, there is a clear injustice because uh, mm -hmm. there's there's not many of us. I mean, there's only five million this year, so that's that's one suburb of a decent city. Yeah. So I, I think one thing we do quite strongly is um, we don't muck around uh, if something important needs to be said. So uh, and since then, um, uh, I've just been following that that risk angle, it's, which has taken me into assurance which is where I am at the moment with For Humanity on the audit risk piece. And what were those, those blunders that you had early on? And you call them uh, beneficial, which is interesting way to look at it. Well, it's beneficial in the sense that uh, it was obviously wrong. We recognized it was wrong. It became a learning opportunity and we took that opportunity. So lots of things had to happen for it to become a good thing in the end. Um, the, uh, the issue is always around inappropriate use. And the context actually isn't that it's necessarily a new use mm -hmm. of data. It's just that society is catching up both in its means to inquire into and understand algorithmic issues uh, and all that really happens. It's the same thing, just different clothes. Um, government service X is discovered to produce um, Y disvariant effects and it disproportionately affects Z people and um, it's the lesson that we keep having to learn, unfortunately. 
I like how you spoke about this idea of it being the same problem and it's just yeah. finding a new uh, a new fr- frontier we could say <laughs> that it yeah. is being manifested in and yeah. so i think this is where we can center our chat around today which is the idea of how to make decisions and how to make sure that the decisions you make are morally just or they are okay uh, in a moral way. So Start with the big one. Start yeah. With, why don't you just go straight to the point here? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's something that I've thought about and we've had other people on here who have talked about decision-making is we don't, oftentimes we don't realize how intrinsic or how tied up we are in our worldviews when we're making decisions and how our culture affects it, our upbringing, or there's so many things that affect the way that we make decisions. Not only that, but the questions that we ask. And so I'd love to just jump in with you. Like what is, how do we know of good decisions Right? How do we know that they're yeah. good? How can we justify those later on that it was a good decision? Because maybe yeah. it's something that we've made now and it seems fine, but later on the line it doesn't. Or we're making a decision to block something now and later on the, down the line we realize it's not that big of a threat. Uh, and so is it air on the safe side to try to uh, make sure that that risk is never that large that's the we can start with yeah. that and then we'll we'll jump yeah. in deeper that's great man um you started with uh, the moral dimension of decision making which is topical now uh, as we're seeing particularly within the industry uh issues of race and gender mm-hmm. uh very high at the moment and what's happening is people are questioning the the moral default in our uh, systems of working and seeing the world. Mm. And that that's a good thing. We want that to happen. Um, it is three, it is a third part of what we would call broadly speaking rationality. So mm. that we're talking about this three part element, what to do, what is true and what is worthy of pursuit. And so this moral element, what is worthy of pursuit has suddenly um, raised its head. Up until now, we've been uh, largely stuck in what to do, which is called instrumental rationality. What's the smartest thing to do? But the AI and data topic uh, inescapably looks at what is true it's called epistemic rationality. And so we, once we start looking at what is true, that's when we really start asking the second order question, which is what is worthy of pursuit. Now, the question around decision-making, the, my focus is always on uh, uncertainty. What is the key uncertainty? Not what is the uncertainty um, we we think we're looking for, or we start with, but what is the really deep uncertainty that we have to solve? When we uh, express it like that, we open up probabilistic techniques, which brings in both data and risk. 
elements and that's that's where i play yeah now the the issue around the core issue that we're seeing right now in data governance world in terms of what is true that's covered by the dis misinformation body of work yeah. where what we what we're seeing is this essentially this epistemic attack on uh, what we can rely on uh, it takes advantage of all sorts of um, unseen fissures in science and data science but um, for the moment one of the things that we that organizations are faced with is a decision that a couple of years ago was routine has suddenly become dangerous it has suddenly become fraught and what's happening is we are getting more feedback from uh, communities and societies that have been significantly adversely affected by the operation of that system over time. Mm. Now, when that system is deployed in a public sector context, i.e. it's taxpayer funded, all of a sudden um, it becomes a serious matter indeed. Mm -hmm. The uh, the interesting thing around public uh, societal attitudes to government at the moment is um, one, stop doing the bad things to us, and two, stop those bad people doing even worse things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so government, public sector, uh, governance professionals, regulators, we have this, we live in this weird world that we're at the one hand, we're getting beaten around the head with a stick, and probably correctly, and at the other hand, uh, we're being asked to go and stop those those bad guys over there. It's a, it's a very difficult um, relationship to have. <laughs> yeah, and it, it feels like it's such a big problem that how can you ask the government to stop doing these bad things, right? And you're talking about how this, this kind of just emerged recently uh, into the, the limelight, we could say. It's not like it wasn't there, but... <laughs> Yeah, it became famous, and so to attack such a big systematic problem, where do you even start? Um, don't try and solve the big system systemic problem. Solve it one piece at a time. So mm -hmm. um, let us let us imagine for a moment that we are say able to take out 65% of the race problem in um, the dominant um, data professional culture in the world, America. Okay, mm -hmm. let's say we're able to take out 65%. Um, now, why I say 65% is a large part of it is going to be instrumental effects, what we call instrumental effects, i.e. the long-term application of these systems produce these harms in these areas. And so um, following the bouncing ball back, we see that, oh, well, if we just turn, turn this switch off and press this one on, then a whole bunch of our problems disappear. Mm. And, that's, and that's where we're in right now, I would say. In most governments, people are looking quite uh, carefully at the hitherto unknown um, uh, liabilities side of their data use which is a good thing. We want them to do that. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, back to you. Yeah, it makes complete sense. I mean, so now when we're looking at the 
the analyzation of these decisions. And I love how you put it on these three different phases of what's like what it's to the, do. Yeah, what, what to do. And what is worthy of pursuit. Exactly. Because I find that the what is worthy of pursuit, like you said, is is very much an important question for us right now. And I, I usually frame it as like, we shouldn't be asking, or we these days, it's not about asking, can we do it? It's about asking, should we do it? And that is the the way that I see that same kind of thing. Is, is it worthy of pursuit? And so this is something that I talked about a little bit back in season one with Heather. Once we turned off the cameras, we're incentivizing something or the way that we are going about incentivizing is by making it making us want to do things that probably aren't worthy of pursuit. But if you're saying, well, I'm going to get a lot of money if I do this, then it is worthy of pursuit. Does that make sense? So yep. the incentivization, if that's a word, uh, is very much backwards in, in this sphere of things because we're getting money, but we're doing the wrong thing in a way. Yeah, yeah. Well, life is uh, uh, unfair at the best of times. Um, the, you know, we, are, we are all driven uh, and our families are all driven to survive over difficult times we've had. Um, we forget how recent and devastating the global financial crisis was in 2008. That those effects are still with us. It's just unfortunately now we've laid pandemic and mm-hmm. information warfare over the top of that. Mm. Um, so the, 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 the thing is the majority of the economy is still pointed in one direction. The, that we, that was laid down in the late seventies into the eighties and the early nineties. And it just takes a very long time to turn the turn systems of this scale. The, um, the trick is, uh, for me to, I think, we embrace the constraint. We recognize that we're fundamentally innovative and change producing creatures. The, we want, we generally want more of the good. Uh, and we, uh, we'd like a lot of money with that. Thank you very much. <laughs> so the challenge is to figure out, um, or to reduce the impact, the adverse impacts. Now, uh, until the last few years, there's been no deep um, motivation within the investor community to um, invest in, in you know, responsible technology mm-hmm. or public interest uh, issues of technology. But that's changing. It changed with BlackRock a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it changed with the, um, the various um, modern, modern slavery laws that were passed that required companies to look into their supply chain to identify ex, uh, labor exploitation. And so we're seeing more and more of what we could roughly call the ethics dividend, i.e. making it worth more worth to do better things. And that is attracting more technologists, um, people like myself, who go, well, we could probably grow the whole uh, economic pie if we um, – 
focus on these communities and behave in these ways and produce products in certain ways. And mm. that's the way I think through um, the enormity of the, of the challenge is uh, once again, finding these communities that are hitherto um, being uh, harmed by the system and figuring out how we can return some, um, some of the goodies of the system to that community. And then why? Yeah, sorry, back to you. Oh, no, sorry, I I interrupt you. Go ahead, finish (laughs) that thought. Uh, It was finished. That was me at the (laughs) tail end of a long spiel. Back to you. (laughs) (laughs) So I uh, like the idea that you were speaking of of, about this 65% uh, fix. And I'm wondering if you feel like the benefits compound or the potential harms compound over time when we are looking at what is happening and and you were saying well yeah if we go back a little bit and we can turn off some of these knobs then we can hopefully create a large effect there and so do you feel like it's that has been compounding over time and now we're just seeing like the results of that? For sure. Uh, definitely here in New Zealand. Definitely. Like I said, since that 2014 to 2016 phase, um, you know, centered around that, the vibe that was established in 2015, we've now seen uh, data governance professionals broadly understood uh, mm-hmm. and their colleague professionals that have had six years of um, changing the way things work and and they this is why i like working through and with professionals is because everyone fundamentally wants to um do a better job at building cool widgets Uh Um, money is good but social proof is much much better um we all crave it and uh that's why you know it's a good thing to have more professionals um uh climbing uh higher mountains in terms of uh, chasing better things. It's it's fundamentally um, self-reinforcing in its behavior that we want to see. This is why it's important to keep focused on the innovation side. What is this mm. um, interesting and new and great thing we're going to build? Back to you. Mm. So I'm wondering about this decision-making process and when you're looking at what to try and make the biggest impact on how we deal with AI and how we deal with the regulations around it or the uh, potential immoral Mm. ways that it's being used. And what do you have like this decision-making process that you would say is a way to go about things or is it, uh, case-by-case basis, I imagine there is a little bit of, well, it depends on what it is, but is there something that you could... Yeah, it does depend. Um, AI is a general purpose technology and we're applying it to everything. Therefore, we're not looking at AI, we're looking at things with AI in them or that have AI uh, attached to them. That's why it's um, the whole data thing is exploding because every professional profession is seeing unique uh, applications in their environment. 
uh, yes, there are um, decision-making approaches that we can apply. And the good thing is they are largely technology independent, i.e. they take into account um, fundamental fundamentals of rationality. Like I said before, um, if you are focused on what to do, but your understanding of what is true is completely wrong. You're going to you're going to go <laughs> careering off, careening off in the wrong direction. Um, if you, and, and the opposite also has its own its own problems. So um, the I think there are two cases. There are two broad cases. One, we have something in play, and we're realizing that it needs to be changed. And two, we're designing something new, and we're about to launch it. Um, which is an Ouroboros that's a dragon eating its tail anyway. So ultimately we're looking at um, what what new things are we doing to change the direction of, of, of our um, path and progress. Mm. That has to be step zero. Without that, um, you're likely to just um, keep um, sending widgets out into the environment and not really caring, which mm. is... Uh, becoming increasingly unaccepted um, by broader portions of society, which makes this period, in my mind, similar to 1968, which was uh, a really interesting year and a great year of social change around the world. And I think we're in a similar period. Ergo... Uh, anyone listening, if you're, you know, you're deploying data and AI system, um, fundamentally, you're interested in how well you understand the environment you're delivering into. Mm. Because this, this is where the risk thing comes in. You are likely to be making um, a mess in someone's backyard and they will come for you. <laughs> they will let you know uh, one way or another. And yes. uh, if if you are um, susceptible by the market market mechanisms, that can be bad news. <laughs> mm-hmm. And sometimes you don't know that you're making this mess until a few years later. Well, for sure, it's uh, that's frame blindness. You can't we can't see it because yeah. we've we, we're not looking for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's jump into these this <laughs> idea of predictable surprises that you spoke about and. Maybe we should just start with what is a predictable surprise? Yeah, sure. Um, the the whole predictable surprise thing uh, came from a 2003 Harvard Business Review article, um, at w- which I I read at the time. And I was working in risk, and I thought, oh, this is great. Uh, this is this summarizes what I see, and as I'm working sort of vertically and horizontally within a large enterprise. So a surprise is predictable where a decision maker remains oblivious to an emerging threat or problem, but it has been recognized for what it is by people closer to the decision problem. So um, that's the first, the first element. This Into the article itself, uh, which was also um, part of a book, uh, which I'll um, note later, yeah. Um, organizations' inability to prepare for predictable surprises uh, were traced to three kinds of barriers, uh, psychological, organizational, and political. 
Now, um, one of those isn't observable. The other one um, comprises everything and therefore is full of instrument effects. And the third one, no one talks about. <laughs> Sorry. Because it's tabloid. Uh, yeah, because it's politics, right? Yeah. People don't want to talk politics. You know, people don't want to even recognize that there's politics within organizations, <laughs> even though we should, because it's it actually does a good thing. Yeah. It, it's a it's a fluid that helps break down sort of calcified culture. Hmm. So uh, this is why predictables uh, predictable surprises emerge. We've got these three big blind spots. And so, and so yep. Go ahead, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, I keep, I keep jumping in. I'm excited to hear this, though. Yeah, continue. <laughs> yeah, no, no worries. Um, like I said, this is a risk concept, but it's also, um, as I discovered, covered off in the knowledge calibration body of work and, and cognitive science, which is where I came across what to do, what is true, and what is worthy of pursuit. So, with these predictable surprises, um, the, the the way to reduce them is actually quite difficult. Uh, first of all, we have to recognize the threat and um, that straight away puts pressure on our understanding of what is true. So if, if, uh, if I've hired um, only from a particular university and no one else, the likelihood of uh, me not knowing what is true not recognizing a threat because we lack sufficient diversity is quite high. So, the, and the, the, so that's the first thing we've got to do is recognize the threat, even though we're blind to it. The second thing is we've got to make it a priority in the organization, which suddenly takes us into that third element, what is worthy of pursuit, because mm -hmm. it goes, well, what is the purpose of an organization? Which is a fundamental question at the moment. And then the third thing is mobilizing the resources required um, to stop the threat, which goes to how difficult it is to turn organizations around if they're running on three-year work programs with funding already in play and you know, huge, huge pieces of work going on that can't just be stopped. Mm -hmm. So it, it turns out that actually if you're getting a lot of predictable surprises, you're probably going to get more as you, you know, bull your way through reality and reality says, no way, mate, you're not, you're not doing that. Um, which is partly the argument for establishing deep into your organization, agile bodies of work, because mm -hmm. they are excellent at turning. Mm -hmm. So yeah. the, this idea, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there and I think you, made it very clear how for us it, that are working these predictable surprises, it may seem like it, we get blindsided by them it, depending on what position you're in. And for other positions, it's like, well, I knew that was never going to work or I knew that was a bad idea. So it really seems like there's a communication problem. And you mentioned these three different pieces of what it was politics and psychological, right? And organizational. Uh, psychology, organizational, and political, yes. And so there's a lot of, when I think about that, and I, I just think like, yeah, 
the communication breakdown and then you look at those three pieces that need to be strong, yeah, it makes sense that you're getting predictable surprises. And then when you talk about <laughs> if you're getting a few of them now, you're probably going to get more of them in yeah. the next whatever X amount of time. So yeah. the communication is huge there. And these surprises being predicted by people, how, like, I'm sure there's people raising flags all over the place. And there's this uh, term in in software development, like when you're observing software stuff and you get alert hell, you get brought into alert hell (laughs) because you know, like there's a lot of alerts, but only maybe one of them is actually an alert that you need to worry about. Right. Yeah. And so I'm wondering how we can deal with like, okay, we want more communication. We want it open. Uh, A, there's all the politics that go into the fact that we don't want to get fired if we start raising flags, right? So that's a whole politics thing. And B, we have to have enough confidence in raising the flags in the first place. And then C, if everybody in a gigantic organization starts raising flags, how do we stay out of alert hell? Yeah, Uh, good good, good one. Uh, I like that. Uh, there is, you, you used the phrase before, um, just tangentially, you said, uh, you referred to if we can, should we, mm-hmm. which is the, um, the, the usual uh, rhetorical question raised for uh, ethical issues and data. The opposite is equally interesting. If we should, can we? And it goes to this issue of, well, is it actually possible to do the right thing in our organizations? Is it, is it actually possible? And in many cases, no, it's not. There's no, um, you can do better by pushing this button button. Um, it's actually quite difficult. The question around um, all the blinking lights as the um, plane is about to um, sort of hit something hard and everything uh, is uh, confusing and you've got, uh, multiple warning signals. Um, the answer to that question is I would be, or I would have identified the different domains of where we can be wrong, uh, previously, or if it's on the same, uh, instrument panel, I would definitely separate what is true blinking lights from what to do blinking lights. You want to, this is how, uh, teams and businesses can destroy themselves with their uh, risk mitigations and controls mm-hmm. where they think they are dampening the thing down, but they're not. They're um, making it worse uh, by uh, application of rote. You know, we, we, we're professionals. We've been doing this for a whole bunch of years. I've been in technology for 20 years and I've always solved my problems this way um, sort of problem. Uh, it's the, this is Maslow's hammer. You know, if you've, if you've got a, a hammer, everything looks like a nail or yeah. practically speaking, everything can be substituted for a nail. Thus I can use my hammer. And, um, uh, that's the, 
that's the second part. And the third part is uh, this whole issue of if we send enough warning signals, wouldn't the entire organization be sending them? And the answer to that is, well, yes, it's, it's just normal communication because we want to have information from those parts of the organization that are closest to the environments we're working with it because they'll tell us if something is good or something is bad. So therefore it's about rewiring um, and we're looking for exceptions. This is why the decision-making by exceptions approach is very effective. You often are looking for the reciprocal case. You're not looking for the actual thing. You're looking for it's reciprocal in the environment. I will stop there. <laughs> that decision-making by the exception, can you go into that a little bit more? Because I think that is a fascinating one. And just this whole this whole idea seems like it's more of a cultural, a company cultural thing that we need to look into and be aware of and make sure that the company is open and transparent with how they're doing things. And you don't have the fear of raising issues. You have the encouragement of raising those issues so that you, you won't wind up with a CEO or uh, high level executives that say, how did that happen? I didn't see it coming. Uh, so, but let's well, talk about that decision making process through exception real fast. Yeah, sure. It is uh, very roughly you define the overall decision space. You work through the uh, things that are going to change. You identify the things that have the possibility of changing suddenly and badly. Um, sorry, this is a risk concept. Risk is logarithmic. Mm -hmm. Not It doesn't follow a normal distribution that goes um, bad, bad, really bad. Oh, my God. Oh, we're dead. <laughs> um, it goes bad very, very quickly. And so the management by exceptions um, approach essentially is you're taking out a lot of the things uh, in your decision-making environment that are not likely to change much. Um, in other words, you are restricting your um, view of the decision problem by focusing on the ABCs, the, uh, you know, like in first aid, airway, breathing, circulation, etc., mm -hmm. And you then move um, from, from that position. It's one reason why um, it's not quite the same, but the whole zero trust approach is being successful because it's looking at the reciprocal. It's, it's turning things around and it's, um, it's, it's changing the information structure of an organization. Uh, I'm fairly sure I didn't answer that question correctly, so <laughs> I'll come back to it. But the, um, the issue that uh, all organizations are, uh, they have a cultural heart, and that cultural heart, uh, to some extent, is interwoven within the communities that sustain them, which is one reason why I have been watching what I roughly call the Californian ideology as it moves through or has affected the way people think here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, which is, uh, even though we're quite close, we're connected by the Pacific, we don't necessarily 
want a lot of these concepts in the way we um, look at our problems. So this whole issue of um, what are the things to worry about in terms of uh, predictable surprises occurring within organizations, much of it is cross-cultural. Mm. It's the it's uh, what we are taking in and why. Back to you. What is the Californian uh, philosophy that you speak of? Oh, I think roughly known as Silicon Valley. I mean, everyone... Okay. When people um, generalize, stereotype uh, a way of thinking and call it Silicon Valley, um, I connect it to uh, a body of work that's identified or analyzed the social, intellectual, cultural traditions from which Silicon Valley emerged, mm. which is... Um, it's nested, it's, it's geographically located. We can identify when the people came together, roughly speaking, the leaders they, cr they created, the companies those leaders built, the products those companies provided, and then voila, 2020, um, much of the world is run from um, uh, data governance land in uh, Silicon Valley. Mm. Now, the reason why it's useful to identify as an ideology is because here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, we have a great cultural dialogue going. And what that means is we are looking at the words we use and the concepts behind those words, and we're asking, hey, do we want this or not? And uh, when, you're, when we're in that situation, we, we can start getting agency as a, as a, a nation and start processing these changes that are hitting us in the face right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, for instance, the facial recognition technology conversation is different subtly if you come from a colonized country, of which much of the world was, as opposed to, um, for instance, it's quite different from the UK to the US to here in New Zealand. How's that? Uh, colonization in general uh, was a profoundly harmful event across generations and multiple cultures. The arrival of this aggressive, technologically superior, um, often violent uh, and with diseases, virulent society coming into our own uh, left has left deep, deep, deep scars. And the, um, the rest of the world can feel very, very far away. And part of the issue is creating this counterbalancing force, which is why I, I rant on in Are You a Robot about the cultural element, mm -hmm. is that we have to create this opposite pole. For instance, we can't really evaluate the impact of the colonizer upon the colonized via the colonizer's instruments. We have to understand it through the colonized instruments, their worldview. Yeah. And so after a while, it's less about uh, what, what, you know, what do we think about what's going on in the UK and the US and more about what of their ideas do we do and do not want here. Interesting. Oh, that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. And that's great to be able to have the ability 
to recognize and ask those kind of questions uh, instead of yeah. just doing them without really being mindful that you're doing them. So, yeah, the we get caught up. I'm oh, sorry, back to you. I was just riffing. <laughs> no, it's fine. I know it's hard. We have the the delay since you are on the other side of the world. So it takes a second to get there. But I find it really interesting when we talk about these different ways of like the structure and the the decisions and these predictable surprises. Uh, and if we nail down more into like data right now and AI and, oh, just a little side note, I think you did an amazing job of saying <laughs> you didn't call anyone out by name, but you gave some great... <laughs> You just made it very clear who and what you were talking about when you were talking about Silicon Valley and the okay. the effects that we've had on that or that have come from that way of thinking. Uh, I thought it was incredible that you didn't actually say any names, but it was very clear. So anyway, back to the, the original question, which was going into AI and data and how we we govern things from that. Like, do you see different structures that are needed to prevent this predictable surprises from these predictable surprises from happening? Well, I mean, two, two parts there. Uh, the first part with my data governance professional hat on is yes, there are structural things we can do and we can see, elements of those when we look at distributed ledger um, uh, systems, uh, when we look at the data trusts body of work, when we look at data commons, we, we, uh, there are different ways of connecting people such that we can reduce systemically the uh, many of the problems that are emerging from the use and reuse sale of, of data. Um, the predictable surprise uh, I consider will always happen because there is a significant delta between the speed of change and the pace within which groups, i.e. networks of people, can process change. Mm. So we have, well, we should recognize that we are actually hurtling we're not falling <laughs> down a hill. We're hurtling off a cliff. We are in very tricky and difficult times. Generationally speaking, this, is, this will be a big deal. That's why I refer back to 1968. Mm -hmm. The issue of um, actually this rate of change and how um, groups need to process what's going on is covered by one of my favorite authors, Cesar Hidalgo, who I um, quote a lot. And he talks about person bites and firm bites, which are basically quantization limits. A person can only be so smart and a network can only be so, be, be so smart mm. before it has to um, find more people or connect to greater networks. And so there is this, 
um, fundamental delta between speed of change and abilities of humans to process things. And the more people necessary to process things, the slower the the group figures things out. And that's where, that's why the predictable surprises thing is best analysed as, as the problem with epistemic rationality. What is true? Mm. And the way we solve that, which is fortunate for us, because otherwise we'd be screwed, is we apply science to the affected area, because that's what science does really, really, really well. And the, and the risk and probabilistic elements of data, the data professionals means we can suddenly, uh, or quite quickly, uh, build mitigations without, within our tools. And that's what motivates me, for example, to do work with For Humanity, because I know these things can be built and I know that they can, in the net, reduce these risk events. And do you feel like these tools are just basically handbrakes on, because you're talking about how quickly things change. And yeah. so the tools are a bit uh, of, yeah. they're slowing it down or putting some resistance on that yeah. rate of change. Yeah, for sure. It's a really good metaphor, but consider that we are actually in a three-dimensional sphere and we have a handbrake for every surface we're touching. And so this is the whole, or to to move the metaphor along, it's the little jets we see on large spaceships and movies that, you know, move the giant spaceship around um, quite delicately and with precision. Mm -hmm. um, it's our ability. We have the ability to um, nudge our way out of danger and towards um, good things because, again, recognize the pace of change is intense. We are hurtling along. So mm. um, we don't have the opportunity to get out and walk and have a look around and stretch our legs. You know, it's one way. We are going for it. And you, uh, get, stepping out of um, safety is really dangerous. Mm. And mm. so the idea then, like we're on this train going 100 miles an hour, and we can't get off, or as you said, it's the spaceship and we can't get off and see what's going on here because we're just barreling down the tracks. And so yeah. that means that we're not seeing these repercussions. We're not seeing what's happening. We're just leaving a trail in our yeah. wake. It's like we just get yeah. to see what has happened after it's happened. And yeah. there's no foresight in that then. How can we be the, the conductor who is there making sure that we're going the right way we need to be going? Uh, that's, this is time. So think of Kierkegaard. Um, life is experienced forward but understood backwards. So we have mm. to be prospective and retrospective at all times. The deeper... Uh, the place where we're heading is that there are fundamental limits to prediction. So we know this uh, through the, um, the work of physicists. You know, physics tells us this um, indeterminacy. Uh, we, we, we know it is not possible to predict exactly where an electron will appear tomorrow 
between one appearance and another, it has no precise position as if it were dispersed in a cloud of probability. That's a great quote from another author I love called um, Ravelli uh, in his book, The Order of Time. Mm-hmm. So what I, what, what I just actually just said was, uh, and this goes to the big data fallacy, um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that simply can't be predicted. There's a, there is an inherent in the unpredictability. Yeah of of things and so when when you consider we're barreling forward really really fast and a whole bunch of stuff coming in a way can't be predicted it really changes the way well i think it does the way we conceive of and solve the problem can't quite recall why i jumped onto that particular point <laughs> that you made but um i think what i'm trying to say gently and to warn us is that uh, it doesn't matter how much data we have uh, mm. because there is uh, this fundamental um, unpredictability to the uh, world of events. Some things are easier to predict than others, rising of suns and turnings of planets, but other things way not, especially when it comes to data, which is something we create about ourselves and of ourselves. It's this really weird um, substance and we use it to justify uh, uh, decisions particularly based around predictions as we know in the risk world often um, are spurious so um, this is one of the reasons why uh, many data professionals ultimately i think one way or another turn to look at the impacts they they look at the the wreckage that the systems that we make uh, have created uh, and ultimately that's why I am a net optimist yes for our profession in 2021 2022 I think we will have um, a, a big uh, step change just like we saw in 2016 it's very interesting this is a side note when you look at the uh, bios of um, many of the current data uh, professionals they all took a big left 10 in 2016 <laughs> yeah as the world did <laughs> <laughs> so back to you i'm wondering first of all i i want to disseminate a little bit of what you said because i find it fascinating how data is something that we're creating and we're using it to make predictions about each other and so data is this very interesting artifact that us humans create. And we're creating so many different pieces of data every moment that we live, right? And especially if we're interacting with computers or phones or technology in general. And I find that, that fascinating. And I wonder the predictable surprises, or if we're going back to that metaphor, being able to look out and say where are we and and recognize which direction we need to move in does ai play any role in helping us predict where things can go wrong yes yes because our uh, frame our frame blindness is predictable mm. <laughs> so uh, a machine 
um, if, a machine, if an AI became our best mate and we were in a pub and we're chatting and our best mate uh, who happened to be an AI looked at us and, and said, mate, you are so predictable. I know exactly what's going to happen um, as, you know, we're discussing my latest plan to get rich or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, we can uh, use these, um, use AI to identify where we are consistently blind or my favorite, which is still the simplest and most effective thing to do, is to estimate confidence of things. Um, mm-hmm. The more you estimate the confidence of things and um, uh, get a feedback signal as to whether you are correct or not, the, the more comfortable you are with uncertainty and the more comfortable you are with uncertainty, um, the, the better and safer it will be for you in general. This helps mitigate that the killer of overconfidence. Mm-hmm. And have you seen tools like that out there? Because I feel like I have not, and it seems like it's a bit of an abstract idea that we're going to have a tool that can go through and see and predict when things may surprise you, especially uh, on an organizational level. already be here. Yeah. yeah, they'll actually already be here. When I come across, when I work with data professionals, I'm not a data scientist. Um, so uh, one of the things I do is I work that boundary of language and I try and figure out um, things that are useful in one domain that are useful in the other. And if you change the conversation to confidence intervals, with a data professional, straight away, you'll have a much more uh, rewarding conversation. Uh-huh. And once uh, we establish that as a lingua franca, we can then identify that actually all through their work will be a whole bunch of confidence interval-based controls. We can't see them. Those professionals have done their excellent work. They have what I would call de-risked the tool. Because remember, any AI introduces instrument effects um, when the, the whole issue of um, gender and race and data me- tells us that we know that there are data effects in our instruments which produce effects, so therefore we change the tool. Um, sorry, back to you. Yeah, is- I, I find that fascinating and the language... <laughs> change is a subtle effect but it is very much important you want to be yeah translating into their language and i like yeah. how you phrase it de-risking the whole process yeah. if you're going to put a product out there you need to make sure that you go through a few phases of de-risking and yep. figuring out what is the confidence interval of a few very important questions to make sure yeah. that you've looked at, at least you've tried to analyze what possibly could go wrong here. And yeah, this is the interesting thing. This is really, now we're starting to get interesting stuff. It turns out that only a few observations of important things, in the environment will take a ton of risk out. Oh. The issue is when it comes back to this frame blindness thing, when we create this construct that we believe answers many questions we stay within that construct and we get dumber whenever we're closer to the decision problem 
um, and we don't have time to remember all this stuff, we are more likely to identify um, immediate things that will kill us and we are paradoxically more successful. Uh-huh. Um, it's, it's a, I discovered this, I was working with uh, the New Zealand search and rescue sector uh, and how they uh, handle uncertainty in their decision environment. And prior to that, I uh, did a presentation to the New Zealand Alpine Climbers Association about how they handle risk. And it was fascinating, really, really interesting because these people are so attuned to their environment, which is fundamentally unpredictable and very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they got really, really good at understanding subtle cues. And then they communicate those cues within their, in their within their group and their community. Um, this is a little segue, but what was really interesting about this, the psychology of the climber is that they want to get closer and closer and closer to um, the uh, uh, the the danger, so mm. um, they they are inherently risk seeking, and also inherently focused on the fundamentals of uh, learning those few things that will keep them alive, as opposed to the highly abstracted thinker, distant from the decision problem. Well, that so, reminds me of yep. the idea of when you go to a new city. You see everything like it's new because it is <laughs> yeah. a novel concept there. But yeah, when you travel, like the first time you travel to a new place and if you're American, you go to Europe or if I came to visit you in New Zealand, it would be an incredible everything. I would be saying, wow, look at those rocks and look yeah. at that. And then if I lived there for 20 years, I would forget that, right? Because it's all become something that is not novel anymore to me. And so I frame that a little bit in my head, like when you're doing, when you're putting out your products, if you're not looking at each product as this novel thing and you're trying to analyze it and really look at it from a different perspective, like with the, uh, with the beginner's mind, and saying, okay, this is the first time that I'm seeing this as opposed to the nth time that I'm seeing it, then it will have profound effects for the better. And I like how you mentioned there that there's a few important questions that we need to ask that will help de-risk significantly. But it's the fact that we don't ask those questions that is really the trouble. Yeah. This is what this is why we want um, greater diversity within the profession because we will be able to de-risk more. Mm-hmm. People will say, "Oh, well, why don't we just do it this way? We've been using this for centuries and it works really well." And then we go, "Oh, damn! We should have asked him in the first <laughs> place." Um, and, and that's this is this whole self-defeating thing of. Um, when humans um, build monocultures and encourage homogeneity, um, we fundamentally change the risk surface. It becomes more brittle and is more likely to break. So it is, in that sense, evolutionary r- rational in the, term, in the sense of what to do and what is true and what is worthy of pursuit to um, come together and s- start figuring out how to de-risk this stuff that we're using. 
I think this connects really well with the idea of that you told me before, which was that every data issue is a social issue. And yes. if we have more diversity, we won't be having such large snafus when it comes to this, these data issues. Yep, pretty much. Uh, though I would caution in the short term, increasing diversity will simply surface more problems. Mm. That's, that's simply because the systems we're using have very sharp edges and uh, there will probably be, golly gosh, let's say a good two to three years before the real shape of the um, social impact side is felt. Uh, at the same time, however, as we learn more about the um, negative impacts of the system we've created, uh, there will be an innovative response, a value-seeking response. Um, more better products will enter the system in uh, regu regulation uh, and various soft law governance elements will do their trick. So uh, again, I'm, a, uh, I'm an optimist uh, overall, but just cautioning that we are going to be finding more and more problems. Mm. Which is, it totally makes sense when we look at how much momentum we've had and the start of this whole movement of checking basically the ethics movement, which is taking hold and it has been taking hold maybe for a few years maximum, right? Yes. So there's been so much momentum behind just doing things however people want that it's going to need to take a few a few years at least before we can slow that down. And I like that you mentioned if we start becoming more diverse, we're going to expose the rough edges. That's a great way of putting it, or the sharp edges. Yeah. Well, um, I'll just go back to you're kind enough to identify how I was addressing some organizations without addressing them. <laughs> the, the way I think about our task in the data governance profession generally, but uh, as people at the moment, is to think like a family mm. and uh, most families have um, things they'd rather not talk about and yet when they talk about them everyone leads ultimately a better life mm -hmm. or has an opportunity for um, a better sense of um, the truth of their existence put it that way so one of the things that I think is critical right now is stop criticizing each other and figure out how to build out that um, the communicative middle ground. And we've, we've seen this with the excessive pol polarization and the, the um, influence of ideology, uh, both new and old, the, the whole, the old left and right thing, which doesn't really doesn't really um, tell us much. But one thing that has occurred is that everyone's um, slinging monkey poo at each other 
Yeah. And we just probably just need to don't to stop doing that um, and figure out uh, ways to um, talk about things. Or if we are going to disagree, at least be clear about what we're disagreeing on. Um, and I think the data governance profession, broadly understood, has a, an important part to play in that as mediators. And do you think that, like you saying that, do you feel like there's going to be mandated some kind of cultural or diversity regulations, or should there be even, where the people that are putting out these products, they need to be compromised of at least, let's say, X amount of women, X amount of men, or... Uh, or X amount of, you need to have X amount of diversity within the races of the people that are doing it so that you will have more vision into where you can potentially catch surprises before they happen? Yeah. Uh, look, it's a nice notion, isn't it? Um, the of law of unintended consequences lashes every... Um, public policy projects. And um, we've seen time and time again how um, we often create exactly what we are seeking to prevent um, when we do um, large-scale uh, policy work that doesn't follow um, good design, good human-centered design. Uh, and one of the things that we're seeing right now is this politicization of data governance. So actually... Um, uh, putting together um, frameworks to create rules makes us feel good but may not actually create um, solve the problem. This is where I talk about reification and goal displacement. Um, we start arguing about how we need to manage PII better and it helps sort of solve uh, the fact that we're not asking more rights questions Mm -hmm. Privacy is just one, uh, albeit an important one. So, uh, sorry, I uh, went off on a tangent there. What, what was the uh, the question again? No, well, I, I want to actually go down that route because that's something we've talked about in Slack and I think it would be interesting for people to listen to real fast is the idea that you advocate much more for rights instead of just privacy. And can you go into that a little uh, bit? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's uh, we've. Um, this is not to criticise privacy. It's just to say that we've um, uh, elevated one particular right over um, others when we are uh, considering um, social impacts of data use. Mm -hmm. So, um, for me, the founding, the starting point is the uh, the various human rights mechanisms that emerged post 1945. Uh, after the world um, did its best yet attempt to kill itself and um, managed to uh, see that a whole bunch of really, really bad things had built up over time. So let's set some rules around that. And um, the, one of the reasons, one of the reasons why I, this, this, I think this way is when I was working uh, in an organization and we were looking at uh, at privacy in general but through uh, a, um, a Maori lens so we have here in New Zealand 
um, Tangata Whenua, the Māori uh, people, and the Tangata uh, Pakihafa, one of the better term, the European settlers. And the European settlers have a sense of privacy, quote-unquote, and the Tangata Whenua have a different, related, but different concept of privacy, quote-unquote, broadly understood. And so part of our job is to try and bridge the, bridge the, the gap between these two things. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I've, I've, uh, I've lost my train of thought again. I, I need more coffee. <laughs> 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 no, what time is it? It's oh, perfect. It's there you go. There you go. <laughs> I um, imagine you you're bring it back to the point. Yeah, you were going to talk about the the privacy that these different cultural backgrounds oh, have. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So if we seek to take the colonization lens off, then we need to place Western notions of privacy within the constructs that they emerged from, which is the international human rights framework. So we have to place privacy in the contents of Western notions of rights, and then we have to place Western notions of rights in connection to uh, rights broadly understood in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And that is the sort of um, process that I would say most, if not every society needs to work through. Yeah, it's about the default and this concept that, um, well, we can't save everything, we can't solve everything, so let's just focus on this one thing. Yeah. After a while, we need to move to the next thing in a complementarity way so that we build an overall better structure rather than keep within one construct. (laughs) Brilliantly put. I want to just make a quick note of something that I remembered while you were talking when you mentioned the, the, in theory, the idea of having a racially diverse team or a uh, make sure that the team is as diverse as possible and, and creating regulation around that. It is nice in theory, but then when it actually gets put into practice, it's so true. I, I look at like something like uh, affirmative action. And in the US, you have people that try to game the system because or they're, they have to do things in a certain way. And so then you get unintended consequences, exactly how you were putting it. And these unintended consequences yeah. are not, they're, horrible uh like secondary effects that we really (laughs) we're potentially creating worse problems by trying to fix the problem in that way yeah yeah that is one of the professionally the the hardest things to deal with is this nagging sense that oh my goodness i think i might be making things worse we can't necessarily turn the ship around and there's no stop button just on that point of um, uh, inclusion, uh, the diversity element, the great quote I saw in LinkedIn, in which I failed to write the person's name down, so I can't attribute them, um, but it was brilliant. It was um, inclusion is applied diversity, and um, it, 
I like the way it turned the, um, it created a, a relationship between the two things and then turned the, the focus around. And inclusion is, uh, well, you know, how many people were involved in that decision? This is yeah. coming back to the general theme around decision-making. How many people were involved? Um, three women, um, three men, uh, and three of those six were um, not white. Um, brilliant. We're, we're, we did it. We did it. Yep, but they all went to the same school <laughs> and they were in the same class and they lived in the same neighbourhoods. Um, and so to what degree actually uh, uh, are we actually inclusive? We're very diverse, mm. but um, not actually that inclusive. Uh, one of the um, really promising things that I see coming out of the UK is the resumption of the idea that um, representatives of labour or, or workers or um, significantly impacted um, communities uh, obtain formal board recognition. Um, and the reason why I like that is that it hardwires uh, inclusion into the core um, governance environment for an organisation. In other words, you know, we have to we have to talk this out. Mm -hmm. We have to figure it out. We can't we can't let it um, uh, just fester into this in this uh, homogeneous uh, monoculture yeah. environment. Like a family. I loved how you put that and that metaphor. Yeah. And really, how it is much healthier when you talk about it, and you. It's not easy conversations, but they're necessary no. conversations. For sure, right? I mean, how do you confront the impact of alcoholism in your family? How do you confront the impact of child abuse in your family? Um, how do you uh, talk about the fact that our money came from sugar, which came from slaves uh, conversation? I mean, these, these are, this is profound stuff. And um, that's why one of the, the, the key motivators we have here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, is aroha and love, um, care for one another. You know, um, life is hard, then you die sort of thing. So, like, along the way, let's just make things less difficult for each other and ourselves, um, just with a little bit more aroha. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's hard enough as it is. <laughs> we, yeah. I, I love that. I, I love your viewpoints and how you see things and also the depth that you bring to the conversation. I really appreciate you sitting down with me and talking. And I have one last question. I'm sure you know what it is. Rohan, are you a robot? <laughs> of course I'm a robot. <laughs> I, I am the least empathic, uh, least empathic human, but the most advanced empathic robot. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. I love it. So I really want to thank you again. This is incredible. And especially considering you're taking the time out of your weekend. I know you're in New Zealand. You had to wake up early to talk to me. So thanks again. And we will, uh, if anyone wants to reach out to you, I will make the plug right now that you are in Slack. You are very, very generous with your time and your knowledge in Slack. So I recommend that anyone listening get in touch with Rohan if you want to continue the conversation and it's just yeah. super insightful man thank you cheers thanks mate